Whoa, 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 whoa. There's still plenty of meat on that bone. Now you take this home, throw it in a pot, add some broth, a potato. Baby, you got a stew going. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is Dark Age Feasts. And it's a combination episode. So we're going to be combining five episodes in this one, and we're going to be covering the kitchens, the feasts, the really fancy feasts, all the little small things that go into it, and of course, entertainment. I hope you like it. And first up, to start with, I'm all yours. It took only two weeks for us to reach our goal, and we have. So I've quit my part-time job, I've stopped looking for other work, and I'm putting all of my time into this. Well most of it. I'm also building a replica of Edward I's trebuchet, but that's a discussion for another time. So now that we've hit this goal, you won't hear me bugging you so much about contributions. Now over on the site, I'm going to be keeping up those stretch goals that we mentioned. And that means that if you're absolutely dying to hear me and Jim sing Bonnie Tyler, there still is hope. And depending on which karaoke night you go to in Portland, you might hear it whether you want to or not. But in general, I won't be bugging you as much. Okay, so I really, really want to talk about feasting culture. After all, part of what people think about when they think of Anglo-Saxon culture are gigantic feasts. And there's a lot of interesting things going on with these Anglo-Saxon feasts. So to say that I'm really excited kind of undersells it. I'm really stoked about talking about these feasts. But I realized that I left out a key part of our discussion on food, namely what's done with it. We've spoken about veggies, we've spoken about meat, we've even spoken about how beer is made, but we haven't spoken at all about cooking, preservation, or how meals were handled in general. So let's chat about that, and then next time, we can get into the feasting, the drinking, and the entertainment. And to start off, let's talk about preservation. After all, this is well over a thousand years before refrigerators, I mean, these days we think of the fridge and the freezer as a ubiquitous part of life. It's hard to imagine how we'd possibly live without them. Just about everything edible seems to go in one or the other. Hell, you even have people like me who keep peanut butter in the fridge, a practice that I only recently discovered was unnecessary, but leaving it out after it's been opened still makes me rather suspicious. So what did people do before these fantastic devices were invented? Well, drying was one of the easiest methods of preservation, and one that we still use today. We find plenty of references to drying cereal grains and beans, as well as herbs, peas, and even mushrooms. It seems that threading the mushroom on a string was a common way to dry it. And of course, it's entirely likely that they also dried their meat. And the nice thing about drying is how easy it is and how many different ways it can be done. You can use an oven or a kiln, or if you don't have one, you can even use an open fire. And if for some reason you can't get a fire going, you can even dry things in the sun. Drying is incredibly easy to do. So in addition to disappointing ale, the Anglo-Saxons were probably also eating a fair amount of dried food. Probably not sun-dried tomatoes, but that's their loss. Another way to keep food from going bad is to smoke it. Anyone who likes to grill knows that smoking can really enhance the flavor of a dish. And there's evidence that the Anglo-Saxons smoked certain foods, such as fish, specifically for their flavor. But it wasn't only done for culinary reasons. Smoke is a funny substance. It has all kinds of chemicals and acids that slow down bacterial growth and oxidation. And that's really the name of the game when it comes to preservation. You want to slow that down. 
So if you wanted a tasty cut of meat or even a tasty slab of cheese that won't go bad for a while, smoking might be the way to go. And as a bonus, it also is pretty easy to do. Hell, in winter, you could just hang the meat from the ceiling, since Anglo-Saxon homes were likely to be pretty smoky in winter, especially up in the rafters, provided that you had a fire going already. And in winter in Britain, you probably would want a fire going. As for the type of wood being used, it really depended on where you were and what you were smoking. Birch might have been used to smoke ham and herring, oak and beech wood for kippers and bacon, juniper might have also been used for pork, and it's been argued that seaweed might have been used in the coastal regions. Hardly the hickory smoked burgers that I like to make, but I'm sure that there's some pretty interesting flavor combinations that were going on in those dishes. Another method that goes rather well with smoking is salting. After all, we have references to salt pits and salt production that date back to the migration period. The advantage of salting is that it dehydrates the meat, and more importantly, the cells, and leaves the food rather acidic so that bacteria has a hell of a time colonizing. Using salt to cure meat was actually really common. Salted foods are often mentioned in folk medicine, and the act of salting meat was even mentioned in Aelfric's colloquy. And that was because salting is really effective. In fact, it's still used today. And here's some inside baseball for you. There's been a discussion on whether or not the next Anglo-Saxon cooking experiment will involve salted cod. Anyway, as for how it was done, chances are that dry salting would have been more common amongst the upper classes since a lot more salt is needed for that, and it's a lot more labor-intensive, and therefore it would have been more costly. Conversely, brining, which is basically just salt and water, would have been more likely to be used by the lower classes. And we can't talk about salted meat without talking about the most popular and beloved of all cured meats. Bacon. Almost everybody loves bacon, and here's a fun fact for you. So did the Anglo-Saxons. And there's references to bacon being smoked after it was cured. Is anyone else getting hungry? Alright, rounding out the preservation methods are pickling and boiling. The idea of pickling is to draw water out of the cells and dehydrate them and create an acidic environment in the food. That's why you used a vinegar solution or something along those lines. For those of you who remember your biology, having a solution that is more concentrated on the outside of the semi-permeable membrane will draw water to it through osmosis. I bet you never thought you'd hear that in a history lecture. Anyway, so vinegar works really well, but you could also use alcohol, and there's evidence that even honey would work because of its heavy sugar content. And we know how much the Anglo-Saxons loved their sweets. Boiling was also used, as I said, and it was primarily a good idea for fruit. Have you ever made jam, syrup, or preserves? Pretty much the same concept was employed back then as we do now, except you're not using pectin out of a box. But basically it's the same idea. You boiled down the fruit to a goop along with a bunch of honey, and then you stored it. All in all, they weren't too different from us. They'd store things in jars and boxes. If they were wealthy enough to have a cellar, a lot of food would be stored in there because the temperature was pretty stable. And if they didn't, they might dig a hole in the ground. Like us, they were concerned with vermin getting into their stored food, and eventually cats and mouse traps would be used to keep their food from getting contaminated by rodents. So all in all, kind of like us. A lot of time our instinct is to think of these people as primitive or alien. But we have a lot in common with them, and if the electricity suddenly went out, our lives wouldn't be terribly different from theirs in quite a number of ways. So now that we've covered storage, how about cooking? Cook is actually an Anglo-Saxon word, and it wasn't a verb, i.e. 
to cook, but rather it was a noun, such as Jamie the cook. Interestingly, it was an exclusively male term, so this was probably a solely male profession. And yes, there were full-time cooks in secular life, and it's entirely likely that monasteries also had men on hand that were there solely to be the resident cooks. These men were probably rather large and muscular, given the fact that they were hauling around firewood, lifting up these huge cauldrons, and hoisting all manner of foodstuffs on a daily basis. So what did these men do, other than, obviously, lift heavy things? Well, I think that you'll find that while some things have changed, other things haven't. After all, cooking is cooking. My grandfather was a chef, and his explanation of cooking has stuck with me my entire life. Cooking is nothing more than the application of heat and time, he said. It made the concept much less intimidating to me, and started a lifelong love with the preparation of food. Heat and time. Alright, to apply heat, we're going to need a fire. This was before matches and lighters, so we're going to need some iron and a bit of flint or pyrite. Some tinder and firewood will also be needed. Hazel, hawthorn, oak, poplar, and willow were typical woods used in cooking fires. There's also the possibility that coal and charcoal might have been used. To tend to the fire, you might have a good poker, some tongs, and you might even have a bellows on hand. Now, as for where you'll be making this fire, in the cooler months, it would probably be indoors, thereby providing a cooked meal as well as a warm home for your family. But in the summer, my guess is you'd be cooking outside. After all, what is more pleasant than grilling outside on a warm summer evening? And there is archaeological evidence that hearths were indeed constructed both indoors and outdoors. And here we have the most simple version of cooking, the direct application of heat to a bit of food. You could just put whatever you wanted to cook on a stick or in a pot or something similar and place it on, next to, or over the fire. Think of it like campfire cooking. So that's the most basic level. It seems that there was also cooking through indirect heat, and anyone who loves to barbecue knows the value of indirect heat. However, the Anglo-Saxons didn't barbecue. They had a different take on it. It seems that one of the ways they would do this is to fill a container with liquid and then heat up stones or bits of iron and chuck it into the liquid. Now that seems like a lousy way to get some water boiling, but you need to think about the availability of resources. If you're a slave or a poor member of society, maybe you don't have a metal pot. Maybe you don't have a cauldron. So how are you going to bring your broth up to a boil? Your wooden bucket can't go on the fire, obviously. Well, this was one solution, and if you didn't have a bucket, you could even make a clay-lined pit, fill it with liquid, and boil your food that way. Not the most appetizing of choices, but what can you do? Another way people who didn't have access to utensils might have prepared food is to dig a pit, put a bunch of red-hot stones into the pit, which had been heated in a fire, and then put the meal, which had been wrapped in leaves or maybe even clay, onto the stones. As time went by, you could add more stones, and basically what you're doing is roasting some meat without an oven. And speaking of ovens, those existed back then too. And some of them were enormous. We're talking about ovens large enough for a man to be placed inside, though I don't know why you'd want to do that. And obviously, the lower in the social order you were, the less likely you were to have access to an oven. If you didn't have an oven, but your village had one, probably because there was a baker there, you might be able to cook a joint of meat after the bread had been baked and the oven was cooling down. But even if that wasn't an option, it didn't mean you were out of luck. One workaround to the oven issue was to invert a pot and then build a fire around it and on top of it, essentially making your own oven, 
and it's a pretty slick way to handle it, if you ask me. And it also had the benefit of not being a tremendous fire risk that some of these old ovens were. And actually, that fire risk was probably why ovens were typically kept in their own building. And on larger estates, the kitchens were also often housed in their own buildings. In small homes, such as a Geber's homestead, all the cooking would have been done either in the main room or outside. But for those large estates, they might have had kitchens, and those would have been in their own building. So what would you be likely to see in those kitchens? Well, cauldrons for one. They could be made out of copper, brass, or iron. Copper would be pretty good because it's easy to clean, but iron's really good because it helps with anemia. You get a lot of iron into your system just by using iron pots, though I don't know how much the Anglo-Saxons actually knew about that. Now on these cauldrons, there would either be a handle or fittings that would allow the cauldron to be suspended over a fire. So needless to say, you would also see either chains or pot hangers in the kitchen. And depending on the wealth of the household, these actually might be rather elaborate. And later on, footed cauldrons would also show up. There would also be ladles on hand, as well as forks for skewering meat. You would see a variety of earthenware pots and bowls, and maybe even some soapstone bowls if your lord was quite wealthy. These would be used for cooking at lower temperatures over long periods of time. They are basically Anglo-Saxon crockpots. Now, griddles probably were also kept on hand, since Bede references them. And, you know, that way you can fry up some bacon, so I assume they had griddles. But on the whole, it seems that the emphasis was upon the cauldrons and the earthenware bowls. That's because it seems that Anglo-Saxon cooking was big on boiling. And that's probably because it's a very accessible form of cooking. While there were cooks available for the landowning upper class, the majority of people were not so lucky. And that's probably why there is a distinct difference between the dishes available. You have the basic staple foods, many of which sound familiar. And then, at least later on, there are references to more extravagant meals that involve flowers, hard-to-find spices, and place an emphasis on both the flavor as well as the appearance of the food. And that, of course, is something that only the richest could afford. But for most of the Anglo-Saxons, cooking would have involved a lot of boiling. In fact, broth is an Anglo-Saxon word. The broths we have reference to indicate that they would have included veggies, marrow, beans, and either milk or butter. And frankly, it sounds a lot like a soup rather than a broth. But if you want a real taste of Anglo-Saxon dining at its heart, you need to look no farther than the stew. When you think about it, having the stew as a staple meal makes a lot of sense. You waste nothing because damn near everything goes into the pot and stays there. And what's nice is you can use a really tough and cheap cut of meat because the way it's being cooked will make it tender in the end. And considering that the meat that you have on hand has probably been salted, you're going to need to do something to make it palatable again, since you could probably use it as a hand-to-hand -hand weapon in its current form. And as a bonus, you can include a lot of cheaper materials like veggies and be sparing with the more expensive stuff like the meat and still have a good meal. Hell, even the liquid you're using to make the stew becomes part of the dinner. Stews are incredibly economical, and they also reheat rather well so they could be stretched over several meals. They're also tasty. Now, at least by the later period, some of the stews would be sweet, using apples, pears, and honey. But most of the stews were probably very similar to what you might have on a cold winter night, and used wine or vinegar to tenderize and break down the meat. Add some sourdough bread, and you pretty much have a standard Jeffers family winter dinner. Now, if you had fresh meat... If you're wealthy or you just butchered an animal, you might want to grill it, which basically just involves toasting it over a fire. 
and we have archaeological evidence from the 9th century that indicates that roasting over a fire was probably taking place by then, if not before. Of course, this is something that you would only want to do if you had fresh meat and also had a decent cut. If you tried to roast or grill tough meat, or even worse, some salt meat, you'd probably be in for a pretty awful meal as well as maybe a chipped tooth. Now, if you could afford it, you might also have some sauces with your meat. It seems that fruit sauces were used at least by the later period. For example, there's a reference to strawberry sauce being used on boiled meat in the Anglo-Norman period, and this probably originated prior to the invasion. There are also references to vinegar, honey, and herbs being used in sauces on meat. And that shouldn't sound too strange to you, considering that even today we have mint sauce with lamb. But of course, your access to sauces would typically depend on your class level. There's also an interesting argument that some cuts of meat would have been encased in flour and water and then baked in an oven, almost like a rudimentary beef wellington. But again, this would probably have occurred only at the upper echelons of society. Now one food that the common people probably ate quite a lot, and a meal that still survives today, is porridge. To make it, they would melt butter, add barley to it along with some salt, and then let it boil until soft, and then eat it hot. Sounds pretty familiar. And since we're talking about breakfast foods, frying was something that also popped up during the Anglo-Saxon period. Usually with drippings, but sometimes butter or oil was used. And much like today, fried dishes often involved eggs, and there are even references to an omelet made with sage and pepper. On the upper levels of society, there were also sweet omelets made with fruits and even flowers, which sounds kind of strange to me, but whatever. And the upper crust also enjoyed custards, puddings, and jellies. These were often referred to as eftmetas. That translates to aftermeats. So, you know, dessert. But something to keep in mind here is that we're talking about a period of hundreds of years, and we're also talking about different areas of the country, different cultures, and different class levels. So the diet of the average Anglo-Saxon could vary a great deal. And of course, the size and regularity of meals would also greatly depend on your station and the availability of resources. But in general, at least by the Christian times, meals were pretty well regulated. In fact, it was seen as sinful to eat any other time than during mealtimes. The sin, of course, being gluttony. So no snacking, Englishmen. And as for the meals themselves, in general we can assume that, at least among the common people, their diet had very little variety and relied heavily on soups, stews, and porridge. And I'm sure this is going to surprise no one, but they were also served with bread and butter whenever possible. Now today we're going to have the first of what I suspect are going to be an ongoing series of shorts that I'm calling... Let me tell you why that's bullshit. And for our first topic, we're going to talk about the myth regarding spices during the Dark Ages. You've probably heard about this myth. In fact, there's a very good chance that you believe this myth. The myth is that people in the Dark Ages used a lot of spices in their food to cover up the fact that it was rotten. You can see why it's a popular myth, can't you? This was in the days before fridges, and we've been told repeatedly that people in the Dark Ages were gross and filthy. After all, they weren't Roman, so they must be gross and filthy. It follows that their food must also be disgusting then, right? People just intrinsically believe this, and I really suspect that it's all the result of an age-old bias that Rome and the Enlightenment were both good, and everything in between was bad. In fact, you can even see that bias in the names that we give the period, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. 
both of which are derogatory terms implying that the era was backwards and merely a waiting period before we got to the Enlightenment. It really is a terrible bias, but there you have it. So rotten food. Did the Anglo-Saxons eat it? Well, ask yourself this. Do you think that the Anglo-Saxons had some sort of ability to fight off food poisoning that, over the centuries, has been lost to us? Because unless they did, why on earth would they eat food that had gone bad? Well, the truth is, in general, they didn't. Just like us, they might accidentally eat something that they shouldn't have and then spend a couple days doubled over in pain. But did they eat rotten food on purpose? No. So you might be asking, why did they heavily spice their food then? Well, they were foodies and liked flavorful meals. But they didn't have fridges. Consequently, like we spoke about last week, they had to use other methods to preserve their meals, such as salting. Well, the problem with salting is that once you reconstitute the meat, it's pretty bland and tasteless. And as foodies, they probably found this bland preserved meat to be unsatisfying. So they experimented by adding all sorts of different spices to their meats. And over time, they developed a palate for heavily spiced meals. And thus, ta-da! Lots of spices start popping up in what little record we have of their meals. So don't buy the hype. These people weren't savages that some of the earlier scholars would have you believe. And this myth is as factual as someone claiming that blackened catfish is heavily spiced because the catfish is rotten. So there you go. Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk about feasts. And to begin with, let's do a thought experiment. Imagine, if you will, an Anglo-Saxon feasting hall. If you have the chance, pause this and write down a quick description of what it looks like, what people were doing, what was going on, whose feast it was, and who was attending. For bonus points, write down why it was being held. We're going to spend a couple episodes chatting about the culture of feasting and what was going on, who was there, and all that kind of stuff. And in the end, you can look back at what you've written down and see how close you were. It might be fun. Oh, and you might want to also write down what you think about Anglo-Saxon hygiene and table manners. That might be fun, too. Anyway, so for today, we're going to have a brief overview of feasts and why they might be held. I think this is going to give us a good framework going forward. And with that in mind, it might be helpful to think about the feast, and actually Anglo-Saxon culture in general, in terms of community. Why do people form communities? It's a near-universal human experience, so why do we do it? Well, we are social creatures, which is probably why we get along with dogs so well, since they are too. And as a result, most of us seem hardwired to feel loneliness quite keenly. So the need for socialization might be part of why we form communities, since they insulate against that loneliness. There's also safety in numbers. A person without a community makes for a rather easy target for certain ruthless individuals and also ruthless communities. So security is probably also a reason. How about productivity? Alone, you have only your abilities and resources. But in a community, you can also share your daily activities with your fellows. You can benefit from their abilities, and they can benefit from yours. As a group, the community can become greater than the sum of its parts, as it's able to accomplish tasks that, individually, its members would have found to be impossible. So there's that too. There are all sorts of benefits to being part of a community. But there are also drawbacks. Interpersonal conflicts, 
being forced to conform to social norms. There are all manner of sacrifices and risks that we take by becoming part of a community. But in general, it seems like the good outweighs the bad. So as we talk about feasting and Anglo-Saxon society in general, it's probably a good idea to remember the instinct to form communities as we analyze everything else. And that instinct and the cultural quirks that flow out of it is highlighted in the feasting culture. So as we talk about these feasts, we're not just going to be talking about food and eating. We're going to be getting a window into how these people organized and how they maintained their status quo. So as you probably imagined by now, food really was just on the surface level of what was going on at a feast. There's actually an enormous amount of subtext at these events. And if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around that, it's okay. That's because you're currently straining against years of biased pro-Roman scholars who want to paint this era as pure barbarism. But this was actually a complex society with intricate feasts that really should be renamed, since feast implies that it's just a meal. It just sounds like we're eating a lot of food. And they were eating a lot of food, but that's not really what it was about. At its highest level, these feasts would really be much better characterized as rituals. Rituals have a focus upon aesthetics, law and order, social interplay, and of course, they have a focus upon religion. Well, so do many feasts. The Gagadorwista, which is the old English term for the assembly of the feast, was, at its heart, a display and a celebration of surplus. In fact, the root, wista, meant both feast and plenty. On one level, these events were sort of like the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of Scrooge McDuck swimming through his pile of gold. The man hosting the feast was displaying his wealth and power for all to see especially in the earlier period. And since the event focused upon surplus, it goes without saying that there needed to be boundless provisions. It would seriously damage the host's status to run out of food. If a feast was thrown, there better be enough of both to deal with it. And as we've discussed in earlier episodes, if you had enormous resources on hand, that meant that you probably had significant lands and could afford to keep a bunch of warriors on hand. By saying, come and feast with me, you were basically saying, look at how much I have. And by saying, look at how much I have, you were really saying, you probably don't want to mess with me. Have you considered serving me instead? But displaying surplus wealth was just part of what made feasting interesting. Feasts were also about reinforcing social bonds. And you might be noticing that I'm using a lot of male pronouns, and I'm going to continue to do so in the future. And that's because feasting was predominantly a male event. In fact, we're not sure that women were even invited to sit at these feasts until later on. They might have just been there, at best, to serve as cupbearers. But we'll get into that later on. So like I was saying, feasts were all about reinforcing social bonds. That's what made them so interesting. You see, by attending the Feast of a Liege, a guest wasn't just enjoying a nice meal and having a good time. He was publicly declaring his loyalty. The Liege and his guests were engaging in a public exchange that was filled with subtext that basically bound the guests, often as warriors, to fight and possibly die for him. And conversely, the Liege was agreeing to keep them well provisioned. In a certain sense, the feast was sort of like renewing marriage vows, only with more promises of killing and gorging. And as a happy side effect, the liege was also ensuring that his warriors remained quite literally strong. Now, fidelity to your liege was also a really big part of Anglo-Saxon life, 
and therefore, that display of loyalty at the feast was really a big deal. There are references that indicate that the Gepharon, they were your companions and fellow travelers, were actually owed more loyalty from a warrior than his own family. Loyalty among warriors and travelers, and loyalty between a retainer and his leader, were not to be trifled with. Old English literature included many tales that reinforced the idea that a retainer turning on his leader would be damned. There were even biblical tales that stressed this moral. After all, what was Lucifer if not the retainer of Yahweh, right? And that connection wasn't lost on the Anglo-Saxons. To turn on your liege wouldn't just put your life in danger, it might put your soul in danger. Here's how serious the bonds we're talking about were. For most crimes, there's a fine. The Anglo-Saxons called it a were-guild, literally a man price. But Alfred, yes that Alfred, declared that there would be no were-guild for betrayal. No mercy, no getting out of it, you were condemned, period. And this bond of loyalty, and of dying for your liege if needs be, probably goes back to the first century, and maybe even earlier. Tacitus mentioned it when he was talking about the Germanic tribes, tribes that might have been the ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons. He spoke of how within those tribes, it was dishonorable and shameful for a warrior to outlive his leader. That emphasis on loyalty is probably why kings and nobles rarely died due to confirmed treachery. And abusing hospitality, such as the hospitality of a feast, was simply not done. For example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle mentions an instance of a violated hospitality in 626, where Eomer attempted to kill his liege and failed. The fact that the writers considered a failed assassination attempt while under the auspices of a hospitality was worthy of noting within the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle really does telegraph how rare this was. You just didn't violate hospitality, and you remained loyal, period. These stories tell us how important loyalty and social order were to these people, and feasting culture was all part of that. And actually, this also ties back into what we were talking about earlier with community. To be without a community was a very dangerous thing. We see that referenced in various bits of Anglo-Saxon literature. Being pushed out of the community, and thus into the wilderness, was a terrifying fate. The wilderness was home to unsavory people, wild beasts, and monsters. Take the best known of Anglo-Saxon literature, Beowulf, as an example. Grendel was, in a certain light, both an example of what awaited those who broke their social bonds, since the wild was terrifying and he was out there, and also a condemnation of what happens to those without a community, as, spoiler alert, Grendel was killed in the end, and he didn't have a community. To be an outcast was just awful. Well, feasts were pretty much the opposite of that. To be invited to a feast was to be invited to the most cherished of inner circles, and to have your place in the community affirmed for all to see. At least all who matter. Feasts also functioned as a way to maintain social order and bonds between landholders and the lower classes. For example, landowners, churls, thanes, etc., would sometimes give seasonal feasts following the completion of a major task, like a harvest. The farmers, and maybe even the slaves, would get the opportunity to eat a little bit better and become bound through gratitude to their master. Think of it like an ancient office Christmas party, though how much they got and how good the feast was isn't clear. 
and those at the very bottom might have only gotten table scraps. After all, you still had a rigid social structure going on there. And sometimes, attendance at feasts might have gone in the opposite direction. For example, a superior might have chosen to attend a feast of his subordinate. One reason this could have happened is to collect food rent. Remember in the earlier episodes how I mentioned that food rent was born out of the tendency of landholders to spontaneously feed and house the king? Well, if you owed food rent and you were having a feast, the landlord might come to your feast and just consume the owed food, probably with help. In Anglo-Saxon times, the people helping him eat were retainers. But today, at least here in the Pacific Northwest, we probably call them freegans. Now we'll touch more upon the interplay and the subtext as we move forward, but for this introductory tour, the most important thing to know is that this really wasn't about food. It was about community and social bonds, and it was filled with subtext. Now in general, most feasts were probably put together for special occasions. For example, a prestigious visitor arrived, or some sort of major event or rite of passage occurred, or maybe there was a memorial for someone who died. In fact, during the Norse times, funeral feasts were probably pretty common. And also, anniversaries of significant events were a pretty big deal. But it seems that religious feasts were some of the most common of the bunch. The calendar was probably filled with various feasts for all sorts of gods and purposes in the early Anglo-Saxon period. These gods were, of course, pagan, and that didn't sit too well with the Christians. And to make matters worse, these events seemed to revel in the temporal pleasures of life, which took the focus off of the divine and off of the afterlife, which the Christians weren't too happy about. So to say that the Christians were concerned would be an understatement. But they had a problem. The people loved them. They were fun, they had cultural significance, and they also had a certain element of nostalgia attached to them. I mean, imagine if all of a sudden the church came along and said, you're not allowed to have a Christmas tree. How would you feel? Would you willingly give it up, or would you try and sneak a Christmas tree in there anyways? Because, you know, it reminds you of your childhood. So these feasts weren't going anywhere. So what was the church to do? Well, it did the only smart thing it could do. It kept the feasts and just rebranded them as Christian. Even the funeral feasts were kept. They were just converted into slightly more Christian affairs. The church officials might have looked at the feasts as a form of the Roman convivium, and thus they found a way to give them a pass since it was hearkening back to the old days of the Roman Empire under Constantine. But maybe the church was more cynical, and this was just a matter of, we need to convert these people, and they won't stop having these damn pagan feasts, so let's just make them Christian feasts and ignore the pagan undertones. Whatever it was, the people got to keep their parties, and the church was able to pretend that paganism was completely stamped out. So in a certain sense, it was a win-win. Amusingly, once the church absorbed the feasts, it wanted to promote them. The problem was that they were rather expensive, so they couldn't mandate that people would have feasts on holy days. I mean, how could a Geber possibly afford it? So instead, they issued rules that said you weren't allowed to fast on holy day feasts. So the church was pretty much on board at that point. And with good reason. There were a number of monasteries that had, well, a decent level of surplus each year. And you can be sure that a chunk of that was set aside for various feasts. And we have plenty of references to monks having a grand old time. 
But it wasn't just the nobility and the cloth who were feasting. Another area of Anglo-Saxon life that feasted, and one that's often overlooked, is found within the guilds. Once guilds came into being, they had their own feasts, and if you were new and without noble family ties, a guild feast might be the only way for you to participate. And these had the added benefit of being able to be bought into. If you had the funds, you could probably attend, whereas the other feasts would require strong family and social connections. Now, like the feasts of the nobles, these guild ones created a sense of mutual obligation and internal hierarchy. But rather than being between the liege and his subjects, they are between the guild brothers and were outside of the noble structure, which probably caused some amount of anxiety. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of how these things operate, there's probably one other thing that we should touch on briefly in our overview of the cultural aspects of the feast, and that's exclusion. Remember that these people weren't all that different from you or I. The invitation to a feast would have been a powerful tool for manipulation and control. But so would exclusion. To be purposefully excluded from a feast would have been like being excluded from Christmas dinner, only magnified many times. That fear of exclusion, that sense of isolation, would have had a powerful effect upon Elijah's retainers. So even those who don't attend the feast can find themselves controlled by it. Okay, before we get going, I have a correction related to the last feasting episode. I misspoke regarding Chinnawolf and Chinnaherd and their loyal followers. Chinnawolf and Chinnaherd were the kings. It was their warriors who stood tall, not them. Chinnaherd killed Chinnawolf in a really shady manner, and Chinnawolf's warriors were in a... Well... They weren't in a great position and were given the opportunity to switch sides. And they refused, staying loyal to their murdered king. So I completely botched that story. Sorry about that. But at least I gotta say Chinnawolf and Chinnaherd a couple more times. Chinnawolf. Alright, let's get on with the feasts. So there were at least two different kinds of feasts from what we can tell from the scattered references available to us. There was the symbol and there was the Geberskippa. The symbol was the more formal version of the feasts. This was the one that had the significant social and religious implications, and the one that will get the lion's share of attention in this podcast because it's just so interesting. The symbol was a structured and ritualized affair, rather than just a big social dinner. Now, the ritual portion of the symbol might have only been a small part of it. Once the rites were concluded, it could have raged on for hours or maybe even days. But those traditions really were important. And I'm not sure I stressed this well enough in earlier podcasts, but these feasts were a really, really big deal. Of course, it was a good opportunity for bonding and for establishing social obligations between members of the upper classes of society. But even the feasts at the lower levels, such as the harvest feasts, would have been an enormous event in the lives of the peasant class. Think about it. You spend your life living hand to mouth, you're under a tremendous amount of pressure to produce enough food to pay your food rent and the like, and then you just have to hope that you have enough left over to feed your family. That's the baseline of your life. And then you're invited indoors into a feasting hall and are in the midst of both material opulence, because the feasting hall was probably a lot nicer than your homestead, but also a great deal of surplus food as well. Suddenly, you weren't concerned with rationing portions in order to make sure you have enough to make it through the year but rather there would be tables of food and you could just enjoy being alive. It would have been the highlight of the year. 
Of course, depending on your station, the amount and the quality of the food would vary greatly. But still, it would be a hell of an upgrade. And it would also be an ordered and ritualized affair, steeped in tradition and nostalgia, which would add to the mystique and excitement of the event. These feasts, especially the symbols, were a big deal. But I should mention that a lot of what we know about them focuses upon the high-status symbols rather than the feasts enjoyed by the lower classes, such as the harvest feasts I've mentioned. So a lot of what we'll be talking about might not apply to those lesser feasts. But unfortunately, we just can't know for sure. So in Beowulf, we see that the symbol is characterized by abundant strong alcohol, speeches, and gift-giving, all in a ritualized manner. There is laughter and camaraderie, especially among the warriors, but it's also serious. It isn't gloomy and dark. It was fun, but it was also a very significant occasion. So if literary references are to be trusted, it wouldn't have been rowdy or irreverent, and everything would have been ceremonial. Drinks, while abundant, would have come at specific meaningful times as befitting the ancient traditions, at least during the ritual portions. This wasn't done lightly. Now, there are items that are typically referenced in literary sources when speaking about these events. Drinking, the hall, the fact that the guests are upper class, the presence of servants, music, gift-giving, speeches, the splendor, and of course, the joyous nature of the event. In some sources, women were sitting in the feast, provided that they were of suitably high status. An example of that would be the wife of the hosting lord, though it does appear that if women weren't sitting at the feast, there probably would be at least one woman present who would be there serving alcohol to the men. There was also a clear distinction between guests and the guests of honor who were entitled to sit with their hosting lord. The regular guests sat amongst the warriors, while those who were given special honor were elevated, almost as if they had a similar status as their host. Okay, so let's say you're a lord and you want to hold a feast. How would you go about it? Well, you would invite your Gelathod, that's your guests, and they would arrive in their most beautiful clothes. Some sources refer to guests arriving in shining armor and bright gold. The Gelathod would then gather and possibly surrender certain prohibited weapons to the Lord's guards, and then they would wait outside the hall. The feast would begin with the sounding of a horn. This would announce to the guests that it is time for the ceremony to begin and they would enter the hall and immediately wash their hands. It's not clear how early this tradition began, but it seems like it was pretty old, and there would probably be water and a towel provided for this purpose. So you might be saying, hand washing? But we were always told that the Dark Ages were filthy and washing was avoided. Well, things aren't as filthy as you probably imagine. So yeah, first up, hand washing. And quick question here, and be honest. How many of you always wash your hands before a family dinner? Are you as cleanly as a thane? So your guests would enter the feasting hall, which would be probably guarded. These guards were there in order to maintain peace, but also to turn away party crashers or anyone who was late to the feast. Being timely is an old virtue in the Isles. Members might remember what happened to Satanta when he arrived late to Kalan's gathering. Being fashionably late wasn't popular amongst the Celts nor was it popular for the Anglo-Saxons. Now the hall itself could be quite large. For example, a 9th century hall in Cheddar was about 75 feet long. The interior walls might have been covered in white plaster, and even if the walls were bare wood, chances are that at the best feasts, you would see ornate wall hangings that featured woven gold throughout. 
It would have been beautiful. In front of the guests would be long rectangular tables with benches pulled up to them. By the 900s, and maybe by as early as the 800s, you'd find tablecloths, and napkins were in use by the 700s. Again, these people weren't as primitive as you might imagine. The room itself would have been warm and inviting, even in winter, and it's possible that having a seat next to the fire would have been a place of honor. That would account for the term hearth companion. The hearth and the braziers would have provided a pleasant warm glow to the room in addition to the lamps and candles that probably adorned the tables. Now after entering and washing their hands, everyone would still remain on their feet. No one would sit, or even go to the respective spots on the benches. That is, until the Lord entered. It would be the Lord who would indicate where people should sit. And seating probably caused as many headaches as developing a seating chart for a wedding. And just like at a wedding, there was a table for the most important people, and then it cascaded down to the lower stations. But unlike a wedding, the less important you were, the shabbier the linens were, and probably also the food. You might get stuck with mutton on a bare table, while the court favorites were dining on venison, goose, or badger on a beautifully adorned table right next to the fire. And their benches might even have had cushions. All of this, of course, reinforces the social order and the status of the lord and his circle. As you probably guessed, where you sat would be dictated by both your status and your age. For example, the veteran warriors would sit closer to the lord than the young warriors who probably made up the bulk of his band. At the Lord's signal, the party would sit, though not everyone in the hall would be sitting. The servants, special officials, and the guards would all remain on their feet. So the hall would be quite active, with servers, cupbearers, and even various court officials scurrying around to their various tasks and carrying out the wishes of the Lord, all while the guests enjoyed the event. And much like Downton Abbey, God helped the servant who dared to sit. What little sources we have seem to indicate that, at least in Celtic circles, the food was served by the men. Again, it sounds a bit like Downton Abbey. And here's where it gets a little muddy. Like I said earlier, at least by the end of the Anglo-Saxon period, highborn women were also sitting and participating in the feasts. But in the early period, we aren't sure whether or not women were invited in a non-servant role. There are references to women serving drinks, maybe pouring the drinks through a sieve spoon to remove the chunks and other impurities such as my beloved creeping things, but whether or not they were invited to sit, we just don't really know. Anyway, once the party is gathered at their respective seats, it's possible that the lady of the household would have entered, wearing her finest clothing and carrying a special container holding fine alcohol. And it's also possible that this wasn't just the lady of the house, but also other free women who entered, all carrying drinking vessels. It might have been an entire retinue. Just remember that this is a period where there aren't a lot of hard facts, and we're relying upon a few literary sources, so it really is tough to ferret out exactly what occurred and whether or not it was uniform. And sometimes we have to look at what the Germanic tribes were doing and just draw connections to what the Anglo-Saxons might have been doing at the same time, since there are cultural connections between the two. So, there are a lot of issues with this period, but we'll just do the best we can to paint a picture of it. Just keep in mind where this information comes from and the issues that those sources carry with them. Anyway, the lady might have greeted the feasting party with carefully chosen words, emphasizing the importance of both the guests and the event, and thanking the Lord for putting on such an occasion. There's a good chance that, much like power couples today, she worked to enhance the prestige of her household. 
But there are indications that she might have also been allowed to ask questions and even express opinions that differed from the Lord. And we will see in later stories that while many of the names of the ladies of the Anglo-Saxon lords are lost to history, they could be quite formidable figures. So the implication with this speech is that the lady is welcoming the party into her family for the duration of the feast. And she stands as matriarch for that event. The tone from the poems that mention her presence and role appear to emphasize her duty as a binding force for the event. The concept of the lady of the house as a peacemaker and civilizing force upon male-dominated gatherings is a very old one, and it still appears today in modern society from time to time. So after she's greeted the feasting party, the lady offers the first drink to the lord of the household. Again, she's affirming the power of the lord. The lord then stands, takes a drink, and might have made some sort of statement, maybe announcing the beginning of the feast. He then sits, and a blessing would be said. To whom the blessing was directed depended on whether or not this was during the Christian era. If this was during the pagan era, the gods would probably be toasted and their protection would be sought. If this was during the Christian era, either the Lord or a guest of honor would break bread, an old tradition of the Judeo-Christian religions. The guests in the hall, at least the important ones, would be welcomed. Their lineage and prestige could have been announced, letting all who are present know why they are given special attention. Gift-giving might have also occurred during this point. Now with gift-giving, reciprocation was really important. But when it came to gifts to warriors, the Lord might have given him a fine weapon and received nothing material in return. Of course, the gift the warrior would give here was the use of that weapon in defense of the Lord. So like I said in the earlier podcast, there's a lot of subtext that's going on here. Now some of the finest gifts given would be from the old Roman Empire, things that the locals couldn't duplicate. But there was also the possibility of land. If you were particularly valued by the Lord, he might grant you some land. But the interesting thing here is that he would grant you that land. Typically, the grant wasn't to you and your heirs. So if your son wanted to inherit the land upon your death, he would need to earn it because it was going to revert back to the Lord. The acceptance of gifts was, of course, steeped in ritual. If the Lord gave you a gift, such as a weapon, it might contain decorative markings that symbolize the bond of duty between the Lord and his subject. There would also probably be ritualized gestures upon the receipt of the gift. For example, there are references to the kissing of the right hand and even resting one's head on the Lord's knee, something Kerouac does regularly. And actually, this act might have been one of the many reasons why a high seat for the Lord would eventually be used. By elevating the Lord, of course you have a visual indication of his power, but it also allows the receiver of gifts to express gratitude without diminishing his status by appearing to grovel too much. After the expression of gratitude, the recipient would be provided a strong drink. So the breakdown of the gift giving was basically like this. If you gave a gift to someone of a higher class than you, you would get his favor in return. If you gave a gift to someone of equal class, you could expect a counter gift. And if you gave a gift to a subordinate, you could expect service from that person in return. Basically, the lower class you were, the more likely you were to get a physical gift. The higher status you were, the more likely you were to get service. And that makes sense, right? What do you give someone who already has everything? Loyal service, obviously. Anyway, so the guests were welcomed and gift giving might have occurred. After that, the guest would then reply with a bayot, which was a statement of some deed undertaken, which was intended to enhance the prestige of the guest and the lord for whom it was performed. 
and then there would be another ritualized drink, and then the guest would thank the Lord. It should be noted, though, that the bayat wasn't a boast. The translation is much closer to incantation, and it's employed to enhance the confidence and splendor of the event. It also derives from the word for calling in the way that you call for single combat. This was a heroic act. In Beowulf, he offers a bayat where he promises that he will slay Grendel or die trying. Note that he doesn't promise success because he knows he can't promise that. This isn't a boast. It's something very different. So all he can do is promise that he will try until his death. Now, if the bayout wasn't particularly prestigious, or maybe the speaker was taking a storyteller's liberties and enhancing things, or maybe he was promising things he couldn't deliver, well, in that case, the thile might speak up. The thile would probably be seated at the Lord's feet and very well could be the ancestor of the court jester. The thile's role was to ask pointed questions and challenge claims made by the guest. The guest must answer those questions, and he's expected to maintain a cool head in the process. Flipping out isn't very noble. And here's where it gets fun. The lady of the household might also ask questions. Chances are her questions would be designed to enhance the reputation of the speaker and garner further prestige, whereas the thile is cutting the speaker off at the knees. This setup is genius. It allows the Lord to sit and listen quietly while his surrogates speak on his behalf, cutting down or building up the guest. This gives the Lord a barrier between himself and the criticism or flattery that's flying around, while also being able to engage in it. Well, by proxy at least. Also, by staying quiet, he enhances his power. As someone who does a lot of speaking, you might have noticed, I'll tell you this. It's the people who say the least who get the most attention when they finally open their mouths. So sitting quietly while others make potentially awkward social points for you is a stroke of genius. In fact, this whole situation is so brilliant that I'm inclined to believe it really happened that way rather than simply being a literary flourish. It would just be crazy not to have it happen. So once the Lord has had his drink, the high status members are then provided their drinks and so on and so forth down the line of class. Each man stands and drinks just as the Lord had done. And this probably took a very long time. And it shouldn't surprise you that these feasts typically lasted a day, but sometimes they went even longer. Depending on the era and the culture, the lady might sit next to her lord after serving the guests. In this way, she's not accorded as much status as the lord, but is still in a prominent position. Next, after all the greeting, challenges, standing, and drinking, the guests would greet each other and basically drink to one another's health. They might have raised a cup or a horn and said, West Hall, Basically, be well, or be healthy, or be whole. The drinking vessel, probably a horn, would circulate throughout the hall and be refilled by the cupbearers as necessary. This would continue for the duration of the event. Hopefully, they're using some pretty strong alcohol, because by the end, there probably were all manner of microscopic creeping things in there. But as the people were eating, talking, watching the entertainment, and all those things will be getting too soon, throughout it all, the drinking vessel would move throughout the hall, and you would occasionally hear, West Hall! And as the symbol drew to a close, there might have been a weapon cup, which would be basically like a last call, where you get a last round of drinks in before you're given back your weapons and granted permission to leave. And once that was complete, the feast would probably be over, and the guests would leave. We have even less information on how these feasts ended than how they began. But probably it was just as ceremonial as the beginning. 
I have a hard time imagining a lord in all his majesty just shouting, Right! Finish your drinks. It's closing time. And while you don't have to go home, you can't stay here. I think that would be pretty anticlimactic. But we just can't be sure exactly what happened there. Maybe everybody was too drunk to really have any kind of ceremony. Who knows? Today we're going to cover some interesting side notes regarding the feasts. Talking about the bigger aspects of history is important, but those little facts that rarely get looked at can also help us to understand these people that we've been getting to know. So this episode is focused upon those overlooked bits. So there are references from the late Anglo-Saxon period that appear to indicate that the mead halls and feasting halls were not just important for community structure, but might have also functioned as the center of Anglo-Saxon society. And this was probably a natural progression from the feasting culture that we've been chatting about. Feasting was big business, especially when you consider that many times it wasn't just the guests who were in attendance. I mean, obviously, you're going to have the Lord's servants running around and doing stuff, but also your guests might bring their own people with them, their retainers. And if you're known for being quite wealthy, your guests might all arrive with fairly large posses. So obviously, you're going to have to plan accordingly. But more importantly, we can see how these gatherings became a dominant feature for the members of Anglo-Saxon society. Everyone who was anyone was going to be at at least some of these feasts. Now, last week, we discussed the symbol and how important it was for the Anglo-Saxons. But that wasn't the only time that a feast would occur. Nor were the feasts always military in nature, with focuses upon oaths and heroism and the like. There were other kind of feasts. For example, we also have references to feasts being held for weddings, which also might have doubled as a way to cement an alliance. The wedding feast is referred to as the Bridaloth, the Bride Ale. And I'm sure this will surprise no one, but the union of the bride and groom would have been celebrated and toasted with a strong drink. They loved their food and booze, after all. Weddings are actually very important for our understanding of the people during this period, and unfortunately that information is rather scarce. I say that it's important because most of the information that we have during this era typically focuses upon battles, usurpations, feuds, and also war. And oftentimes that was between the Anglo-Saxons and the native Britons. But then we have references to marriages between the kings of Northumbria and Bernicia and the nobles of their British neighbors. Some of which specifically mentioned that an alliance was born from that union. That's strange, isn't it? It's a huge deviation from the bloodthirsty records we're accustomed to, and it tells us a lot about our Anglo-Saxon ancestors, especially the Northern Angles. Specifically, these weren't simply the violent brutes that our myths have sometimes portrayed them as. We're already learning that they were sophisticated, but here we're seeing that they were also interested in creating economic and political relationships with their neighbors, even when that involved crossing great cultural and linguistic divides. And this is reflected in the relationships we later see in the 7th and 8th centuries between the nobles of the British, Pictish, Anglo-Saxon, and Dalriatic cultural groups. The Anglo-Saxons weren't the one-dimensional conquering warriors that many people assume they were. And these marriages might also point to the possibility that the brutal wars between the Germanic tribes and the Britons that Gildas and others have told us about were only part of the story. These people were politically savvy and were able to strengthen their standing through peace as well as through their martial abilities. And considering that the Britons to the north had spent four centuries under threat of, or in outright war with, the Romans, not to mention being the butt of racial slurs such as Pretunculi, this was probably a welcome change for them. But there's another thought that's raised with all this. 
The Anglo-Saxons were certainly smart enough to know that they needed allies, and were reaching out to the native cultural groups. So were they smart enough to try and bring the local population into society? Agricola used the same tactics to great success centuries earlier. So did they? Well, we have a lack of archaeological evidence showing genocide, such as mass graves, and we also have some new and pretty exciting genetic studies that might suggest that at least some of the Britons might have stuck around. So integration is a possibility. But how much of the population was free versus staying because they were enslaved is another matter entirely, and I don't want to give you the impression that things were all rosy and that the Anglo-Saxons were cuddly. They weren't. All I'm saying is that they worked on forging alliances with their neighbors, sometimes with marriages, and that they probably also tried to bring at least a portion of the local population into society in some manner. So I don't think that they're the brutish monsters that we were told they were. But let's get back to the feasts. So there were wedding feasts, and in that way these people were much like us. There were also funeral feasts, and those have also persisted into modern day. And this is an ancient Germanic tradition where friends, family, and followers of the deceased would have shared a meal together. There would probably be alcohol, toasting his or her journey to the afterlife, and songs were probably sung praising his deeds. Chances are that a lot of this sounds familiar to you, though in your experience I guess that the songs were probably replaced by stories, possibly funny stories. But the wake that you attended where you sat down and told stories and regaled upon how great of a life he or she had, that has ancient roots. Now we don't have many references to these events, and they might have been heavily ritualized, but from what we've seen, they seem to be a step below the rigid symbol as far as ceremonial weight. But there were probably some rituals involved. And then you have the feasts, if you can call them that, that really didn't have much ceremony to them at all. We have literary references that call attention to the Geber Skippa, which can be translated to beer drinking or drinking party. The word sounds remarkably like Geberas, the people who drink beer together. And as you might imagine, it appears to have been a much less haughty occasion. There would be food and drink at these events, and we have references to entertainment being provided, but they typically lack the more ceremonial aspects, such as the gift giving. You can imagine them along the lines of an impromptu barbecue. A few friends come over, someone suggests having a shared dinner, beer and food is then consumed, and everyone has a good time. There really aren't formal rules or a heavy emphasis placed upon ritual because this is all being done on the spur of the moment. And really, the point of it is to eat and drink with your companions. Well, that's pretty much a Geber Skippa. And that's why we focus so much on the symbol, because the real action in the feast is all located in the symbol. Friends just sitting down and sharing a meal and having a beer isn't nearly as interesting as the heavy ceremonial aspects of the symbol. So let's cover some of the behaviors that you'd see at one of these symbols. We've already spoken about how there might have been linens and napkins there. Well, what about table manners? What do you think were the appropriate table manners for an Anglo-Saxon feast? Did you even imagine that there were table manners when I asked you to jot down a few things that you thought about when the idea of an Anglo-Saxon feast came up? I'd guess that you didn't. Not many people assume that the Anglo-Saxons observed any sort of propriety when it comes to the consumption of food. So what do you think the table manners were? And for that matter, do you think you have better manners than an Anglo-Saxon? Well, let's see. Do any of you believe in the five-second rule? 
You know, the idea that if you drop food and pick it up in five seconds, you can still eat it. Can you honestly say that if you dropped a bun on the floor, which had been recently swept and looks pretty clean, and then immediately snatched it back up, that you wouldn't eat it? Maybe after brushing it off just to be sure? I probably would. And I'm guessing you would too. And the result is that we have worse manners than an Anglo-Saxon feaster. Another thing that I'm guilty of is wolfing down my food. I think this is because my father and I were always in a race to get the last Yorkshire pudding. This, of course, was before we discovered, to my mother's horror, the concept of the strategic food lick. And then it was suddenly just a race to lick the Yorkies faster than my father. My poor mother. Anyway, years later, even though I've abandoned the strategic food lick, I still reflexively eat quickly. And that's something that would be frowned upon among the Anglo-Saxons. They were foodies and apparently felt that food, especially at a feast, should be savored. Though there is archaeological evidence that at least in some circumstances food was bolted down. Possibly on occasions where hungry Welshmen like me and my dad were invited and licking every Yorkshire pudding in sight. We may never know. The point is that these events weren't as filthy and base as you might imagine. They had napkins, linen, you were supposed to eat slowly and really savor the food. If something fell on the floor, you didn't pick it up even if it was only there for a second. They were better behaved than we might imagine. Now along the same line as manners, how many of you imagine feasting as a violent affair? Given the amount of booze and the violent undertones hinted at in Beowulf, it's a reasonable assumption. So did you think there would have been a fair amount of bloodshed in a feast? Maybe drunken bloodshed? Well, luckily, there were cultural issues with getting drunk. For a warrior to be drunk was a shameful thing. But from what we can tell, there was a great deal of booze at these events. So chances are at least a few people probably got drunk. And even today, when people get drunk, especially when there's complex social interactions going on, you have the possibility of things getting heated. So the Anglo-Saxons decided to reinforce peaceful behavior through legal means. They did this through the Ware Guild. The Ware Guild for murder at a feast was quite a bit higher than elsewhere. The message being that if you absolutely had to kill Hrothgar, if he just had to go, at least don't do it at the dinner table. So chances are these feasts weren't that violent. We don't have a lot of references to a lot of brawls breaking out in the middle of a feast. As far as drunkenness goes, despite the cultural issues with it, it did still occur at the feasts. We see literary and occasional historical references to certain individuals getting drunk at feasts. Usually it's mentioned with a tone of derision. Like I said, this was frowned upon. But it did happen. And so did overeating. And as you might imagine, all this overindulgence would become quite an issue for the Christians once we reach the Christian era. After all, gluttony is one of the deadly sins. So you can imagine that the Christians really wanted to get rid of these feasts. But as we spoke about in earlier episodes, these feasts were a part of Anglo-Saxon cultural heritage, so it was unlikely that they were going to go away. Our ancestors weren't all that different from us. And if the government or the church said you couldn't do something that your family had been doing for generations, something that was steeped in tradition and had a heavy sense of nostalgia attached to it, you would probably balk and continue to do it anyways. And the church was smart enough to recognize that. So they rebranded many of the feasts to have more Christian tones and recognize Christian, rather than pagan, figures and dates. But even with this rebranding, the church was still in a tough spot. The whole idea behind the feast sort of flew in the face of Christian morality. Yet it was still an intrinsic part of Anglo-Saxon life. 
So what is a pious person in England to do? Well, give the leftovers to the poor, obviously. Problem solved, right? Well, sort of. It at least gave a little ecclesiastical cover, but you still had the issue of gluttony, so eventually they tried to deal with this through the legal code and specifically outlawed overeating and overdrinking. But how strictly those codes were observed would really depend on the people present at the feast. And avoiding overeating would be pretty difficult given the quantity and the quality of the food that might have been made available. From what little references we have, it seems that beef was a popular meal, and the meat would probably be fresher and a better cut than usual. Oddly, lamb and mutton were absent from the record, but birds might be on the menu for the high-ranking guests since they're hard to obtain. Like with most meals, bread and butter would be included, as would fine cheeses, ale, beer, mead, wine. This wasn't a primitive meal with plain roast meat on a stick. Rather, there are references to these events being opportunities for chefs to flex their culinary muscles. There were probably incredibly intricate and complexly flavored meals at these feasts, especially at the symbols. It wouldn't have been a barbecue. It would have been closer to haute cuisine. So we've been talking about some pretty heavy detail regarding these feasts, and actually about food in general. We know what they're eating, we know what they were drinking, we know how the parties were thrown and why, we know how food played a key role in the economy, and thus how these feasts were a huge show of power. We know about the surroundings and what they looked like. We even know about the table manners that the attendees would have followed at these feasts. But we've missed a key detail. Entertainment. I wonder how many of you right now have images of drunken warriors playing William Tell with throwing axes as they roar with laughter. Well, I don't want to burst your bubble, but that probably wasn't on the schedule. But just because these people lived a long time ago and they weren't playing incredibly dangerous games doesn't mean that they didn't like to enjoy themselves. And in addition to being socially important, these feasts were also supposed to be fun. Hell, isn't that kind of the point of most parties? So if you are throwing a day-long feast today, with all of today's technology and advancements, what would you provide to make it fun? Of course, if you have the right mix of guests, you won't need much. People usually are content just to eat, drink, and chat. But just to be safe, you might want to have some music playing. Depending on the crowd, there might be also some games available. Possibly even Rock Band, which inevitably leads to Bonnie Tyler, Journey, and Bon Jovi if my circle of friends is present. Maybe a poker game is in the back. A day-long feast has a lot of time to fill, so what would you do? And of course, what do you think the Anglo-Saxons did? I mean, you could have a variety of warriors at these feasts blowing off steam and trying to live life as well as they could because they knew they might die in battle at any point. Or even at the lesser seasonal feasts, you'd have a bunch of agricultural workers who have been toiling in the fields under backbreaking conditions with very little to take home, and now they were given the opportunity to cut loose and celebrate being alive. This would have been the highlight of their year. Even religious feasts had a certain element of revelry to them, though by the 8th century, much of the entertainment was banned at the clergy feasts. But in general, these events were a moment for the community to bond and take joy in their lives and the lives of others. Fun and entertainment would have been quite important. It was probably a great deal more important than at the random, hey, it's Friday, come on over parties that we have a habit of throwing. Now again, in order to discuss this, we're going to need to look at the records and traditions of the Germanic ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons in order to fill in some gaps. 
But since feasting is such an old tradition, it's a pretty safe bet that not a tremendous amount has changed following their migration to Britannia. And actually, let's open up with something that we know a little better than most, and something that I've advertised in the subtitle of this episode. Riddles. Now these might have been told by a Hlatorsmith, a Laughtersmith. And we know an unusual amount about these riddles thanks to the Exeter book, which is from the late 10th century, but it probably reflects a tradition that was much older than that, and some scholars believe that the riddles in that book are a written record of the works of the 7th century cleric named Aldhelm. Others point to Alfred the Great. We'll probably never know who the original author truly was, but the riddles are a wonderful window into the people of the time. A people who were earthy and had a fun sense of humor. And there's a good chance that composing riddles to stump your friends was a source of great amusement, and perhaps laughtersmiths use riddles the same way that stand-up comics use observational humor today. And you can even imagine Bede composing riddles to unwind and to stump his fellows in between compiling his histories. We know that riddles have a long and storied history among the people, and actually they seem fairly common for European people in general. And of course, on our island, once we get to the Christian era, Christian themes are incorporated into the riddles. But the riddles weren't always religious in nature. They were also humorous, and a bit dirty. Here's an example, translated from Old English. I am a wonderful thing, a hope for women, useful to those near me, none do I harm among men except my slayer. My standing is high and steep. I stand in a bed, hairy beneath. Sometimes she dares, the comely daughter of a yeoman, the proud girl, so that she grips me, rushes on me, ruddy, seizes my head, fixes me in a firm place. Soon she feels our meeting who comes near me, a woman with curly hair. Wet shall be her eye. So what do you think it was? I'll tell you at the end of the episode. Now the riddles themselves are written in verse. That is, they're poems. But like much of recorded Old English poetry, they aren't given line breaks like many modern poems. Instead, it looks like they're a regular block of text, but it just happens to follow a rhyme pattern. But from what we can tell from the scant record available, riddles covered a wide variety of subjects. They would sometimes be humorous, sometimes dirty, other times they were serious or had religious tones, and sometimes they were just brain teasers. So these were probably a feature of entertainment at the feasts. Perhaps the laughtersmith stood and told riddles to the group as a whole, or maybe they were shared among friends and feasters as the day progressed and cups of alcohol were emptied. Hey, Redwald, I have a good riddle for you. Or something along those lines. They also functioned as a way to challenge those around you. You could test the knowledge and intelligence of those who you shared a table with. Perhaps there is an air of competition with regard to these riddles. Who could solve the most riddles? Who could ask the best riddles? That sort of thing. And on the subject of competition, we know, thanks to Tacitus, that the ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons really enjoyed games. And not just games of skill, but also games of chance. So of course, in a situation like that, there was probably gambling. And the Anglo-Saxons' ancestors took gambling very seriously. In fact, the stakes could sometimes get as high as a man's personal freedom. Imagine that at your next poker night. Your buddy goes all in and you're convinced all he has is a pair of twos. Do you respond and say, I'll raise. If I lose this hand, I'll sell myself to you in slavery. Well, the Anglo-Saxons might have. Needless to say, at the time of Tacitus, gambling wasn't a light affair, but rather it was a weighty experience. And beyond personal freedom, there would also be an impact on your ability to lead. 
A leader was judged not just based on his charisma or abilities in war, but the Anglo-Saxons would also judge their leaders on the quality of the harvest, which was the equivalent of us judging our leaders on the economy, and they would also judge him on his luck. To be lucky was really, really important. Some of you might remember Napoleon's emphasis on luck, how he wasn't just interested in an officer's ability, but also wanted to know whether or not he was lucky. The Anglo-Saxons were cut from the same cloth. So while we don't have any direct textual evidence that gambling was a part of the feasts, its importance, and the Germanic tradition of it, does suggest that it might have occurred at at least some of the feasts. And besides, we still do that from time to time today. I've been to more than a couple parties that have had an impromptu poker game breakout, and considering that the feasting tradition traveled to Britannia, it isn't too much of a stretch to imagine that the games and gambling also came with it. Now we also see references to storytellers, of course, this was before television, film, and radio, so a feast might have been an opportunity to hear these tales. It would be sort of like going to theater. Now, much like with most of this period, the stories and behaviors would be dictated by whether or not this was in the Christian period. We don't have a ton of evidence related to the stories of the pre-Christian period, but they were probably heroic and mythic tales. But we don't know much about the stories because, well, we don't really know a lot about their religion. We do our best to infer what they believed, but the early Anglo-Saxons weren't keeping diaries, so it's hard to figure out. And like I discussed in the member podcast, we have to be careful to avoid the biases we've developed from modern Christianity. We've become accustomed to religion being bound by a single creed with only minor variations between various sects. It's easy to imagine a pre-Christian England as having a single religion where everyone believes roughly the same thing. But that's probably not the case. And much of what we imagine the Anglo-Saxons believed comes from Icelandic tales or earlier records of the Germanic tribes. So again, it's a lot like splicing frog genes into dino DNA. So that's a long way of saying we can't be sure what myths and stories they were telling. But based on later tales that emerge, I suspect that there would have been heroic stories and poems, as well as myths about the gods and great characters in their past. Maybe they told stories of Hengist and Horsa and sang poems of Churdich. That would make sense since many other communities tell stories and fables of their founders, so why should the Anglo-Saxons be any different? And it would account for the stories surviving long enough to be recorded by Bede and others. And maybe many of these kings that we later hear about, who are largely just names on a page now, had great stories attached to them that were later lost to time. It could be that the stories of these early kings were known to everyone, and so when the records were finally compiled, there was just no need to include the corresponding tale because everyone knew it. Like if we were making a list of prime ministers, we might not go into a huge amount of detail on Churchill for the list because everyone knows who he was and why it was important. But will people know who he was in 3500 CE? All those facts we take for granted, if they aren't written down, could be lost. So at these feasts, maybe there were epic tales of heroism and heartbreak that centered around these shadowy figures that we see listed in the Chronicle. Tales that are lost forever. It's possible. Now once Christianity spread over the island, the tales would have turned into stories that are a little more familiar to us. The church was keenly focused upon stamping out paganism on the island, so many of the stories would have been biblical. They were probably still exciting and epic, though, such as the story of Samson or Jonah or Abraham nearly killing his son. And here's where we see the genius of the church. Everyone would have been hearing largely the same stories, which probably didn't happen in the pagan period. 
Christianity sometimes takes some pretty hard hits in this podcast because some of the actions done in its name have been rather shifty. But establishing cultural unity was a stroke of genius. And that was pretty unique for the time. Remember Constantine weighing in to establish what everyone would believe? I mean, that was kind of revolutionary. On the other hand, it does stifle independent thought. But on the flip side, it also makes unity and conformity much easier to obtain. So it's brilliant, really. Anyway, so there were probably stories being told of various figures from the Bible, and there were also probably tales being told of local saints, some of whom could have been local pagan deities before the conversion. There were also probably poems. Poetry is an ancient tradition, and even Tacitus pointed out that the Germanic tribes used verse as the only way for them to record their histories. And it was a tradition that we know continued for centuries afterwards. Poetry allows for complex stories to be retained to memory without the need for a written language. And given that the Anglo-Saxons were illiterate for quite a while, it would have been key. And we have the later appearance of Beowulf, which was a poem. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that poems would be told or sung at these events. After all, there are Old English words for storytellers and jokers, and where better than at feasts for people like that to practice their craft. And it seems that it wasn't just men who would do this, but also women, since there's an Old English word for female entertainers of this sort. As further support for the telling of poems and sagas at feasts, consider this. You could probably tell all of Beowulf in about two hours, something that I've been toying with doing, actually. And so is it so hard to imagine a storyteller standing up and singing of Beowulf's glories while the feasting party eats and drinks and listens and rapt? It wouldn't be terribly different from what I do here, except it would just be much more beautiful, as it would be in verse and possibly sung. And speaking of singing, let's talk about music. Music was probably the form of entertainment most closely associated with the feast. And to be honest, it probably still is the type of entertainment that is most closely associated with a party. Parties without any music tend to have an odd vibe. But don't forget that this could be a multi-day event, so the music wasn't just for revelry, but it also served a variety of purposes, including rousing the warriors from their sleep. Depending on the tune, this could be either a pleasant way to wake up, or a terrible way to discover you have a hangover. Beowulf references this practice, and at least in that situation, it seems to be the pleasant variety. Now the musicians employed might have been wandering minstrels who had hired themselves out to various lords, or they might be on permanent retainer if the lord was wealthy enough to be able to afford that. And provided that the musicians were talented, they could expect to be rewarded handsomely. Gifts of booze, animals, and jewels are referenced when discussing happy lords hosting musical troops. Of course, the best way to be rewarded is to sing of how great the lord is. And that almost certainly was a common theme among the musicians, potentially along the lines of Monty Python's minstrels and their song Brave Sir Robin, but less sarcastic and silly and more reverent. But this wasn't just an activity for the musicians, a profession that has a variety of Old English words associated with it, including dreamcraft and songcraft. It wasn't just confined to those groups. Hrothgar, the king and Beowulf, would strum a harp and sing. And if you don't trust Beowulf, we need to look no farther than Sutton Hu. Among the artifacts in that burial, we find a lyre, what they called a harp. And that isn't an uncommon treasure to be buried with the Anglo-Saxons of high status. And there are references to saints who played musical instruments or called for musicians to play for them. And interestingly, unlike on the continent, some of those songs were secular, 
a fact that emphasizes how the British church was unique and distinct from its continental cousins. And from the later Anglo-Saxon periods, we learn that the clergy combined music with their lessons, and this was probably a very old tradition among the people. All of this reinforces the fact that music probably played a key role in the festivities. And I'd love to talk about what this music sounded like. Unfortunately, we have absolutely no idea. We don't have any sheet music or any sort of record indicating what sort of tunes these musicians played. Not a single note survives. Did they follow minor or major scales? Did they follow scales at all? Unfortunately, there's no record of that or much else. Chances are you would hear fiddles, lyres, what they called harps, whistles and pipes, trumpets, cymbals, and drums. And actually, a good number of those words are Anglo-Saxon in origin. But unfortunately, all we can do is look to the instruments used and just imagine what it must have sounded like. They had a variety of instruments that could combine quite beautifully. But who knows? Maybe they were tone deaf. We may never know. Along with the music, there might have also been dancing. There are references to this by Tacitus when he speaks about the Germanic people, so it's an old practice. And the words we have associated with this are hlepan and tumbian. Tumbian probably involved acrobats and jugglers and professional dancers, but dancing wasn't just for the professionals. The guests, at least by the 8th century, might have also danced. So if you've been paying attention, you'll note that by the 8th century, the clergy weren't allowed to have much entertainment at all. And meanwhile, now we have dancing at secular feasts. So it's kind of a bummer to be in the clergy now. The days of the drunken monk orgies apparently are behind them. Now last on our tour of entertainment is one of my favorites, board games. Much like myself, the Anglo-Saxons appeared to have loved board games and played a variety of them. In fact, the word game is Anglo-Saxon in origin. We found game pieces and dice in Anglo-Saxon digs. We've also found gaming boards, some of them being double-sided, some with intricate grids, others with carvings along the edges, and some with holes for pegs. Unfortunately, they didn't leave any instruction manuals. Interestingly, we know that chess was spreading throughout Europe in Anglo-Saxon times, but we don't have any record of it being played in England until the dusk of the Anglo-Saxon era and the rise of the Norman era. But they still had plenty of games to play. And from the pieces and gaming paraphernalia that we found, it looks like a lot of care went into the creation of these games. It looks like they were highly valued. But the point is that once again we're seeing that these people weren't all that different from us. They liked games and stories. They liked music and jokes. They liked games of chance. And they enjoyed a chance to just escape. Just like us. Oh, and the answer to that riddle that I asked? Did you guess an onion? Or was your mind in the gutter? Now, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. You can find us at facebook.com slash British History. And we're having quite a few fun conversations over there, so you should join us. If you want to find us on Twitter, just go to at British Podcast. And of course, we've got our bustling forums. You can reach the forums by going to the British History Podcast.com slash forums. All right. Thanks for listening.